I recently heard a story of uh, two men who went scuba diving together. And as they were out swimming, uh, one of them got caught up in, in a current or a big wave. And he, he was spun around, so he, he totally lost his bearings. He didn't know which way was up or which way was down. And if you've ever experienced something like that, it is, it's an awful feeling. It's a, a vulnerable feeling. And his friend could see that he was in distress. So how do you help someone when they're scuba diving when they're disoriented? Well, he, sw he swam over. He grabbed his friend by his arm and swam down until they could both plant their feet on the bottom. Grounded, he could know which way was up, which way was down. He was reoriented. Well, you may never have gone scuba diving, and you might never. But have you ever had a similar feeling in your life? Where things come into your life, where you feel overwhelmed, where you don't know which way's up, which way's down, how am I going to go any further? How can I live another day? How can I get out of bed tomorrow? Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you're overworked. You're too busy. A relationship implodes unexpectedly. Someone you love dearly dies. Rent, mortgages, an unexpected doctor's diagnosis. So many things can come into our lives that quickly overwhelm us so we feel like we are spun around. And in those moments, how do you ground yourself? How do you find your bearings? We can be so overwhelmed. Sometimes we even forget who we are. An identity crisis. How do we know who we are in those times? Where do we go? The great Christian theologian J.I. Packer once wrote, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it disappointing and an unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you will sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Big words. So how do, we, how do we know God? Well, we come to know God by looking at his word, by turning to the scriptures. And today, this passage from Deuteronomy, this beautiful passage, confronts us with a big, glorious view of who God is. And my hope is that today, as we would look at these three points that spring up from this text, that we would be awestruck by God. That we would look to God and we could find that He is the only one who can truly ground us in life. And so as we turn to our text, it's almost like, um, have you ever walked in the living room and, and someone's watching a movie and you've come in late? A lot of the story has gone by before you come in. Well, here in our text, this story of the people of Israel and of Moses really begins in the book of Exodus. And we're coming in later on. So in the book of Exodus, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, the superpower of the ancient world. God chooses Moses as their leader and delivers them through the ten plagues. There's this epic showdown at the Red Sea where the Egyptian pharaoh and his, his army on charioteers pursue Israel and try to re-enslave them. But God delivers Israel through the parted sea. And in the same sea that they're rescued from, the Egyptian army is swallowed up, consumed. And the people are freed. 
And as free people, God leads them to the promised land, the land of Israel. But when they get there, they see other, bigger, stronger people, and they think, we cannot beat these people. We, we are like tiny little grasshoppers. It's hopeless. And they blame Moses and God. They lose faith. So God disciplines them. They, they wandered through the Sinai Desert for 40 years. And then eventually, God graciously leads them back to the border of the Promised Land. And that surrounds the, the setting of our text. But now, Moses is an old man. He's 120 years old. And he's about to die. This, this new generation who has risen up, they have been pilgrims their whole life, moving from one place to the next. No stability. They still face the same giant enemies before them that the previous generation had. But, so the problems haven't changed. But now, Moses, the only one they've ever known as their leader, is going to leave them. He's going to die. And so it would be easy for them to be overwhelmed, to be disoriented, to be afraid. And so Moses' last recorded words are here before he dies. Where does Moses want to turn their attention? Where does he want to turn our attention? He wants to ground them by turning them to God. And this brings us to our first point, the first truth that springs up from this text. Moses wants Israel to know, and he wants us to know today, that there is no one like God who is mighty and majestic. There is no one like God who is mighty and majestic. This, in verse 26, if you read with me, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Now that word, Jeshurun, you're probably not familiar with. It's used a couple times in scripture, and it literally just means upright one. And, and it, it is used to refer to Israel. It's another name for Israel, the people of God. And sometimes it's used in an ironic scolding sense to humble them. And other times it's used in an intimate sense, a loving sense. And that's what it is here. So Moses is saying, people of Israel, Jeshurun, there is no one like your God. He is unique. Well, how so? Well, in the ancient world at this time, it was common for people to believe in many gods. It wasn't a big deal. But, the, but these lowercase g gods were local and limited. A god of, of the sea or a god of fertility. These gods had borders. They had limits. Moses is saying, your God, the true living God of the Bible, is all-powerful. In his might and in his glory, he has no match, no equal. Look at the rest of the verse with me. 26. Who rides across the heavens to help you, and on the clouds in his majesty... God rides across the heavens, the clouds. It, it, it carries this image of riding of a, of a horse or a chariot. If you have ever stood near a horse or you have gotten on a horse, you know that they are not just beautiful creatures. They are powerful. And chariots were the most sophisticated military technology of this time. And only Egypt alone has them, and this is why they are a superpower. And so together, they are both signs of great power, of might. And we still understand this a little bit in our modern world. 
If, if a friend gets a, a really nice car or truck, it is not uncommon to ask, how, how much horsepower does that thing have? There are signs of power. And so Pharaoh, earlier in this story, when he rides after Israel with his army on horses and chariots, he rides on the land, and Israel is frightened. But God rides not on the land, on the heavens, on the skies, on the clouds. Think about that. Maybe next time you're driving early in the morning or on one of those days after a storm and there are those bright, fluffy clouds. Think to yourself, my God rides on the clouds to the aid of his people, of me. It is a picture of total dominion, total sovereignty. Nothing is above God. The powers of this world pale in comparison to the God of the Bible. They are no match. And Jesus himself will use the same imagery to speak of himself. Just, just two examples of that. In, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then will appear the Son of Man, that is Jesus, in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Or the Apostle John, in Revelation 1, speaking of Jesus, writes this. He is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. If we continue in verse 27 here in Deuteronomy, the eternal God is your refuge. The eternal God. So this, this God, he rides across the heavens and the skies in his majesty and power is eternal. And again, this is in contrast to the, the false gods of the ancient world where they are they're born out of chaos. Or, or like Newt or Osiris in Egypt, they are created gods by other gods. But the God of the Bible is wholly different. He has no beginning and no end. He is infinite. He is everlasting. And we continue. And we read, underneath implied you, underneath you, are his everlasting arms. Maybe you are a tradesman or you know a tradesman or you know an athlete who works out a lot. They may have strong arms. They may have big arms. But you have never seen anyone with everlasting arms. And the everlasting arms of God never grow tired or weary. But rather, they give strength to the weak, to the fearful. They ground his people. Moses even continues this imagery further in verse 29. Look with me. Verse 29. He, God, is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. So shield. God protects his people. Helper. God strengthens. He uplifts his people. Glorious sword. God will defend his people. And put together, 
They paint a picture of a God who is all-powerful. He is strong and mighty, glorious and everlasting. Maybe you're thinking, eh, okay, I've heard this before. Why does this really matter? Well, it matters in a lot of ways, more than we can talk about here this morning. But just a couple. If you want to know God, if you want to know the God of the Bible, you cannot just imagine the way you would like him to be. I like to think of him as this. No. We must meet him as he reveals himself to us in Scripture. And then we must be awed by him, wondered at him for who he is in his character. And it matters because inevitably, when uncertainties and suffering and enemies come into our lives, having a big, mighty view of God will ground us in those hard times. Knowing a big God will hold us fast in his arms. An old Scottish pastor, Oswald Chambers, once wrote, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you will fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, when you have a big view of God, you will fear nothing else. But when you do not fear God, when you have a small, tiny view of God, you will fear everything else. You see, without God, and if you're an unbeliever here today, you might not be fully aware of it, but your life will be governed by fear. Could be fear of missing out, could be fear of the opinion of others, could be fear of COVID but your life will be governed by fear. And an ultimate test of this is, if, is death itself. You see, if you're not a believer, and, and we only believe in what we can see, this life is all that there is. And that means you're going to worry and you're going to fight and, and hold on for, for every little moment of your life. When, when dangers come in or threaten you, you won't just take normal, sensible precautions. You will be paralyzed by fear. You will cripple your life if need to because you need to hang on. Safety will almost become a god. Safety will be the ultimate priority. Nothing is more important than being safe because I cannot fear death. I cannot face death. Or another way this, can, this fear of death can manifest itself is we'll avoid death altogether. Death is not something to be seen. It is to be in quiet rooms, out of the public eye. Death is not to be talked about in polite conversation in society. This is not something we should talk about. And we will never really admit to ourselves or contemplate for any serious amount of time, I am going to die. Am I ready to face death? Am I ready to die? And it is a bit ironic that as a culture that, that prides itself on our, on our progress and our education and our, and our knowledge, it is rare, not impossible, but it is rare to have an honest, frank discussion about de- the most important matters in life, death. But when we fear God, when we have a high view of God, when we are grounded with this big view of God and we fear him, that is, we revere him. Then we will be grounded when suffering comes into our life 
and when we have to face our own death. Because we know that nothing is bigger than God. That God in his might and power is all powerful. And we will still struggle with worry and anxiety at times as believers. Christians struggle with this. I struggle with this. But even if it is little by little, day by day, we learn to trust God. We learn to look to him. We learn to find our grounding, our security in him alone. And this will make a remarkable difference. One last note on this point. If God does not change, and he does not, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this mighty eternal God who rides across the heavens and the skies meets us here today. And it is that God who baptized little Logan today and claimed him as his own. He claims us as his own by faith in Jesus. However, Moses doesn't want to just give us a big view of who God is. Moses wants us to see something else that is crucially important. Point number two. There is no one like our God who is close and near. Yes, God is all-powerful, but he is not distant. He is not far away. He is not detached or cold. He is not a watchmaker. There is no one like our God who is close and near. Now here our text serves as a great example of the depths of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Because a lot of the same imagery used to teach us God's might and power is the same used to teach us of his nearness and closeness. That God is with us. That God never abandons his people Look back up to verse 26 with me. Which way is God riding? Is he riding away from us or towards us? He's riding towards us. He is the God who is coming. Look to verse 27. The eternal God is your refuge. For those who believe in him, God is is their refuge, their shelter, their home. Now, now we live in a fallen world, so sadly, this is not always the case. But home is supposed to be, it ought to be, a safe place. A place where you can go and feel comfortable and relax. A place where you can be free. Where, where you can enjoy loving relationships. Well, in God, we find our truest home. He is our refuge. He is our home. Look at the next line with me. And underneath are the everlasting arms. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? God's people are safe and secure in their heavenly Father's everlasting arms. It should make us feel small, and God seem wonderfully big. He is near. Think back to Logan's baptism. His mom and his dad held him in their arms. Their arms are underneath him. Well, so God holds his people in his everlasting arms. 
And so add it all together. Do you see the, the totality of what these images show? In the skies, God is above us. In his arms, he is below us. Defeating our enemies, he goes before us. As our refuge, he is around us. He is the God who is near. And so this God who is near and close, he is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. The only one who can ground you or me in our fears and our worries. One last note on this point. This, this imagery throughout this text shows the close, intimate relationship Israel has with God. And it really it shows that God's people are united to God by faith. And you see in the Old Testament, God was Israel's refuge. He was their home. He was their dwelling place. And in a way, all of these metaphors foreshadow. They point towards a greater union, a greater relationship. Our union with Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people. In the New Testament, God dwells in his people. United to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, he is in us, and we are in him. And that means there are many implications of that. One of them is our identity. Our most fundamental identity is in Christ. You cannot sever any believer away from Christ. And that is another marvelous aspect of Logan's baptism today. It is, baptism is a sign. It is a picture pointing us to the truth of that union. That by faith, we are united to Jesus. So Jesus is our refuge, our shelter, our home. That will ground you when nothing else will. So there is no one like our God who is mighty and majestic. There is no one like our God who is near and close. And there's one more truth that, that Moses wants us to know, to ground ourselves in. That there is no one like our God who saves his people and gives them hope. There is no one like our God who saves his people and gives them hope. Look at verse 29. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread upon their heights. Verse 27. He will drive out your enemies before you, saying, destroy them. And verse 26, he's riding to your rescue, their help. If you know the movie uh, Beauty and the Beast, there is a scene where Belle is running away. She's through the woods, and then she is pursued by these man-eating or woman-eating wolves and she is thrown off her horse. She is surrounded, and it looks like she is about to die. And then out of nowhere comes the beast, and he fights the wolves. He destroys the wolves for the one he loves. It's a small glimmer. It is a small picture of our God who rides to the help of the one he loves, his people his bride, his church. 
Israel still has enemies. This is not a pie in the sky. They still face real dangers of death and slavery before them. They still have uncertainty. They still feel like the tiny little grasshoppers that they were before. But the power and nearness and hope that God brings will ground them that they can know that regardless of the troubles they face, God is bigger and God will be faithful. He will deliver his people. He will save them. And to to make this hope not just wishful thinking, but a, a strong hope, a certain hope, Moses reminds them of who they really are, their identity. Look at verse 29. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. But do you notice? He reminds them of who they are, not by what they have done. Not by what they have created for themselves. He doesn't appeal to their self-esteem. He reminds them of who they are by pointing them to God. By reminding them of who God says they are. What God has done. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God rescued them through their time in the desert. God is saying, I will deliver you from the enemies before you. God is saying, I will give you the promised land. I will be faithful. I will be true. And their identity in all of that is as saved ones. That is who they are at their core. And friends, that is who we are at our core. Our identity is not ultimately in in money or education or ethnicity or skin tone or nationality. No. Our ultimate identity is as saved ones, as in Christ, as people redeemed and united to their God. But, just like Israel, we still face enemies and trials in our life. Now, we probably don't have tribes trying to kill us or enslave us. And I don't know the exact suffering or the trials that you're going through, but God does, and you do. And they're real. They can be quite overwhelming. And just like Israel, we must face, we must deal with sin, and we cannot escape death. Against those enemies, we too are like little grasshoppers. And left to ourselves, self-sufficiency, we are bound to fail, to stumble and fall, to lose our lives and souls. But, just as God rides to the help of Israel, God has ridden to our rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, in his love, this great, all-powerful God condescended to become a man on the earth. And for our sake on the cross, it is a great mystery, but the everlasting arms of God as a man are stretched out in our place, in yours, in mine, for our sin. He dies. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He was resurrected so that not even death itself can separate us from him. Think of Paul's words Later on in Romans 8, he writes, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And friends, when we grasp that, when you grasp that, when, when we cling on to this in faith, that is the strongest grounding in life. God himself. That whatever difficulties or trials that come into our life, he is not a crutch. He is a refuge. Our refuge. We learn to say from the bottom of our hearts that I am not my own, but in body and soul, in life and in death. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is my only hope. If there's one thing I need to cling on to in life, it is him. And I know he holds on to me. And however the world wants to divide us up, divide me up, I know that deep down, my, my deepest identity is with him. You cannot separate me from him. Or him from me. And if we know that, these very real but momentary afflictions that are in our lives, we know that they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And they cannot pluck us out of our Heavenly Father's everlasting arms. And maybe you're here today and you are not a believer. And maybe you are, you are tired of just being worried all the time, of being disoriented in life. And maybe you are just starting to see your need for a Savior from, from sin and death and judgment. Well, know this, friend, that the everlasting arms of God push away no one who come to him in humble faith. So repent, that is, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus, and trust him. He will forgive you. He will embrace you and claim you as his own. He will give you eternal life. And he will ground you in the all of life storms. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are in your love and in your grace, in your power and in your majesty. Lord, what have we to fear if you are with us? If you died on the cross for us, will you abandon us now? By no means, Lord. But we are forgetful creatures. Help us, teach us, humble us to trust you to lean on your everlasting arms. May we know your peace and the joy of knowing you.
Give us hope, Lord. Give us strength, for we are weak. Help us to be people who truly can say from our hearts that we know the everlasting God. He is my Savior, my Father. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit.